Wow, a little bit of a uh, downer that psalm, eh? Guy who's going through some struggles, uh, facing some challenges, but in the end understands that the Lord will, will bring him through. And I trust that's our experience, that we understand that. Um, that, yeah, we can go through some difficult times, but, you know, as it says on the sign out there, God has a plan and a purpose, and we just keep seeing more and more how that takes place uh, through his word, through the history of what we're studying here in Daniel, and even through our own lives, we see that God has a plan and a purpose, even when, to us, maybe things look a little bit arbitrary. Uh, They don't seem to make sense, but Anyways, as we come before the Lord this morning, let's uh, ask him to speak to our hearts. Uh, Let's just bow before him. Father, you've heard our our voices as we've sung these songs of worship before you. We recognize you as a God who is worthy to be worshipped. The creator God. The sovereign God. The God who is in control of time and and eternity and all the events therein. We just pray that you'd help us, that you would, as we sang, lead us on this road of sacrifice, that we would learn to sacrifice even more and more to truth, to your truth, to you. And Lord, we ask as we look into your word this morning that once again, as your living word speaks, that we would be living souls, that we would be ready to hear your living word, that we would be humbled before you, that our ears and our hearts would be attentive to you and what you are saying to us. So guide us, lead us, we pray in this time, and we pray that even now, even in this study of your word, that we would be honoring and exalting and worshiping your name because you, God, are worthy. And we pray this. Because of Christ. Amen. So we've learned over the last couple of weeks how transformative worship can be. And not just the formal sort of worship, but the worship of our life that changes what we do when we're here together, the formalities of our worship. And I trust that you see that, you're attentive to that in your own life. Um, you know, we can come together and we can sing and, and, and those who are leading us can do a great job and it can be songs that we like and, and words that really speak to us. But the thing that makes our worship more impactful to us and to God is when we've been living lives of worship on a day-to-day basis. We've sacrificed our will and our wants in order to honor God. And in relationship with him, our existence becomes sacred. Isn't that beautiful? Doesn't that sound good? Don't we wish that that was how we came away from a normal work day? Wow, my life is a sacred offering before the Lord. It can be. It can be all that. And you probably have seen it sometimes in your life where where you think, boy, that was a good day. And not just everything worked well or went well. Maybe it didn't. But it was something where you see how you lived your life in communion with God, who he is, and you were honoring him. 
And we saw that worship can change us as it did Daniel and his three friends. They thought and acted differently. They had this relationship with God. Their hearts were transformed. And as they lived in a pagan nation, their lives were a reflection, an overpowering reflection of the God that they were serving. What they were doing here, the the minority, these guys who had no real power, it spoke to the world around them of who God really was. It was an absolute contrast to the religious antics of a confused and and maybe a well-meaning king. You saw the difference. We saw the difference. We understand the difference. Nebuchadnezzar, you know, trying to be religious, just made a fool of himself. And these guys just carefully honoring God, making the right decisions, following him. And it impacted. It impacted the world. Nebuchadnezzar, this king who, well, he represents all of us. When we worship God, even worship in a self-centered way. So how, did, how do you see things in your life from this past week? As we look back on our weeks, and I'm not just saying you guys, but me, guy, as well. How did our week go? How were we in this, in this process of life, in the problems that we face? What, were we reminding ourselves and were we reminded, maybe even especially in the difficulties, of the fact that our lives are to be lived in worship to God? Sometimes it's those challenges that push us more profoundly to seek God. You know, God, I'm not seeing you in this situation. You talk about being loving and caring, and here bad things are happening. And we are pushed, and even in in going through that exercise, it is worship as we seek God, his perspective, his truth perspective, in the midst of, of the difficulties of this life. And our hearts are changed. And then the way we live is changed. We yield ourselves to God, our heart, our attitude, our activities. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar said he noticed in these three guys. He said they yielded their bodies. Of course, it was way back at the beginning when they just made the right decision from their heart to honor God. But in the end, I mean, the thing he noticed was they were ready to go to the fire. They yielded their bodies. That's the end, the end of a transformed heart through worship is the activity of the person. And, you know, I think of a verse that was really, it, it caught my eye when I was younger. It says in 1 Timothy 4, 8, bodily exercise profits little, but godliness. You know, I always thought of that as bodily exercise, you know, working out. But really, what Paul was talking about there was religious exercise, outward things. And he wasn't saying it's not important at all. But those things are only important as an expression of true godliness, of the true heart change. 
And so we see that we're called to have a heart change. And for that to work out in our everyday life. These three guys, they had hearts that were given completely to God. And we saw how it worked out in their circumstances. And the only reason we can do that is because we have a Lord who is who he, he is. And he took on human flesh, didn't he? A body. So he could yield it. We saw in the story last week. He went down and walked in the furnace with the three guys. Those three faithful guys. And we know that Jesus Christ came into this world in bodily form. He yielded his body up. Not simply just to walk in this life that we experience. This life which sometimes is like a furnace. For him it very definitely was. And he faced the torture of the cross in order to honor God and to serve, to lovingly serve us by being the sacrifice for our sins. He did this for humanity as a whole, for, for people in particular, for individuals in this life. So how do we do, how did we do following that example of Heart and body. Sacrificial worship this week. Were you thinking about it? Maybe you think, I, I did pretty good. Maybe you think, well, if I had a report card in this, la in this last week, it, it might have say under the worship area, it needs improvement. Some of you would be horrified to get that on your report card. Needs improvement. Others of us, we're more accustomed to seeing that term on our report cards. Needs improvement. But when we're honest, we know, we all know, that we could improve in this area, this area of worship. But you know, we're usually hopeful for ourselves. We, we think, well, it wasn't that bad. I know I could do better. Next week will be better. We're always hopeful about ourselves. But what about others? What about the Nebuchadnezzars of this world? Are we hopeful for him? Are we hopeful that things will get better for this guy? Nebuchadnezzar is a, a representative of the big guys of this world, the, the rich and the powerful. And you think about the way we talk about the big guys in the world today, big governments, big pharma, big corporations, they're the bad guys of the meta-narrative today. You know, I learned that word a couple years ago when I came back from, from Peru. Someone was talking about meta-narrative. And what is that? That's a story that we accept as a society, true or not, that sort of explains the structure of things and how they work. You know, in a sense, sometimes those fairy tales that we learned as kids are meta-narratives. It's the way we think. And the way we think today, whenever there's a story told, normally the story is, hey, if that person's rich, if they're powerful, they're, they're bad. They're evil. Whereas you can think of back before, there was at least, you know, one or two Daddy Warbucks in the story. Remember Daddy Warbucks? He was the guy who took in Orphan Annie and the, 
the cartoon, that story. He was the rich guy who just lavished his love and his wealth on this little orphan girl. And, and there was this mentality, this idea that, you know, there's some good rich people out there. But in our minds today, man, if they're big, if they're well-known, if they're powerful, they can't be good. Power corrupts, we say. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. But let me ask you this question. Could God love the despot? Could God love and transform the tyrant? Does God care about the rich and the powerful? You see, God tells stories in history in the events of this life he writes them into not just so we can point the finger and certainly not so we can condemn other people but so that we can learn from them what might it look like if God loved a tyrant What might it look like if God was to work in one of these people's lives? This is what we come into in chapter 4 of Daniel. And we're going to be, I think, surprised at what we learn on one hand. Some things you'll say, oh, yeah, I knew he had it coming to him. He deserved it. But don't we all deserve it? So let's get into the story here and let's learn what God is teaching all humanity, the world, people in this world, and people like you and I from this event that involves this major character in world history. King Nebuchadnezzar writing to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. I think most of us remember, when it comes to Nebuchadnezzar, maybe you read ahead, I hope you read ahead before, uh, before this, this morning, Nebuchadnezzar went through a rough spot in his reign, a little bit of a, a problem in his life. And the interesting thing that we learn from these few verses as we begin this chapter is this is not just a record of an event that God orchestrated, but this is the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one who's speaking in these verses. In fact, for the first 17 verses of this chapter, it's all spoken in the first person. Daniel might have been writing this down, but it's Nebuchadnezzar who's speaking. And we see something very interesting at the beginning in the tone of what he is saying. He's talking. And he's not interested in his own glory. 
He's talking about the goodness and the greatness of God. How great are his signs, the Most High. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. That's interesting. Something has changed. Because when we last left Nebuchadnezzar, he was struggling. I mean, there was some growth. (laughs) But man, he started out. He was trying to annihilate everybody, right? I have a dream. I want an answer. Everybody dies who doesn't tell me what they... Remember? And then... After that, he was just going to, uh, he was just threatening to kill some. Whoever doesn't worship this image from my dream, I'm going to kill you. And then the last verses we read, I mean, he was just ready to dismember those who spoke against Daniel's true God. (laughs) For him, it was all about death. (laughs) Somebody has to die because I said so. Did he get it completely wrong that this whole worship thing is about life and death? He understood it was important, and we do too. I mean, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so we could have what? Everlasting life. Two verses later, it says he didn't come into the world to condemn the world. The world's condemned already. God is a judge, we're condemned to death. You see, Nebuchadnezzar, he was still thinking he was too important. And he says, this whole worship thing, it's about life and death. And he was right, but he didn't have the right to choose who is living and dying. It's God who will choose, who will live and who will die. So worship is a life and death issue. It is absolutely important. But it is God who is the judge. Nebuchadnezzar, boy, he was was an interesting character. Let's put it that way. But we look at him and we go, we laugh. These flagrant flaws in his life. We could say, how could we say that that is a growth in his understanding? I mean, look at him. He's still ready to kill people. But let me ask you this. Did any of your flagrant flaws follow you through the process of you coming to Christ? I bet they did. Things that you had in your life as you came to Christ, you you maybe let go of some of them slowly. Some of them are probably still present in your life as temptations, aren't they? I know that's true in my own life. We're always quick to judge others' sins. And what do we say about ourselves? Well, we excuse our own sins because we know that, I mean, they're just a product of who I was and what I faced and how I grew up. And, you know, all these, wouldn't those same excuses work for a guy who was a king who had absolute power over everybody who had people surrounding him that are saying you are the greatest you can do whatever you want imagine what would have happened to you or me in that situation 
how we would have turned out. What would have happened to us, how we would have been living if we had people who were only encouraging us, what sort of things we would be doing, what kind of a fouled perspective we would have on life and truth. But you know, we sort of live in a world like that because in our society today, part of that story, that meta-narrative is telling us, well, we're, we're the most wonderful people in the world and we can choose whatever we want. Whatever you want, that's what you should have. And it's kind of preaching to every one of us that you have the right to have anything you really desire, isn't it? That sounds dangerous. A whole bunch of, a whole country, a whole society full of little kings and queens thinking we've got absolute power and can do whatever we want to do. Well, let's think for a moment about some of the people in who are kings truly today, those who have extreme power. Maybe they're celebrities that are treated like kings or government leaders that are treated like celebrities. Could God save them? Would he save them? Might it look like a stumbling, awkward process you know you think of it Nebuchadnezzar that's that's what we're talking about here it was a a a struggling process of him you know giving up this mentality this idea that it's all about me he struggled to give up that you know I I don't like that person I don't like what they're saying get rid of them he was a tyrant We think even about Solomon, the king of Israel, a man who had a relationship with God. And everybody's telling him, Solomon, you're the greatest, you're the wisest, you you do whatever. And he was wise, but man, in that circumstance, what happened? His desires, his lust. Everybody's saying, no, it's okay, do whatever. You're the king. Think about some of the examples in our society today. You're the king. Might have been the king of rock and roll, but he was the king. And everybody around him just, you know, do whatever. It ended up being an absolute most destructive thing. We think, could God, would God, what if? What would that process look like? How would it be as they did that putting off and putting on that we're called to do? Every one of us as Christians. You remember the passage in, in Colossians chapter 3. The verses we memorized, verses 1 to 4, are our memorizing. Right after that, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness. He's saying get rid of that, that evil stuff, the garbage in your life. And he he talked about even later on some of the simplest things like anger, wrath, slander, obscene talk. After all this time, how are you doing? How am I doing? Have we put all that stuff up? It's gone now, right? 
right? Is it gone? And then he says, put on. And he talks about all the stuff that we, we, we should be putting on in our life as God's chosen ones. Verse 12, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. And above all these, down in verse 14, put on love. How's the process going in our lives? Have we put off all impurity after all this time? Have we put on gracious love? Do we have this this gracious love in our hearts completely? After all the gracious love that God has shown us. He's saying, boy, you're on the first point of this sermon and it's already uncomfortable. You're already poking at us and I'm poking at me because we've got to consider this. We can look at these these major figures and we can see their flaws because they're in public, because they're displayed for all to see. But they're great reminders. They are great reminders of who we are and the process we're going through. But you know, we see Nebuchadnezzar and in these first few few verses, I gotta say, something's changed. Something has happened. I mean, he's talking about God who is the Almighty, who has an everlasting kingdom, like my kingdom is in second place. He doesn't just say, I noticed it just reading it, just now, up in front of you. He doesn't say these things that God did to me. And we're going to get into some pretty rough stuff that Nebuchadnezzar faced. What's he say? He doesn't say, oh, that which God did to me, the end of verse 2. But he says, the signs and wonders that the Most High, has got, Most High God has done for me. For me. You go through something like what Nebuchadnezzar goes through, and you say, this is something that God did for me. Your perspective is different. It's changed. You know who God is, and you know who you are. There's a humility here that is incredible. Well, let's continue to read. I, Nebuchadnezzar, I was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in, the bed, in, in bed. The fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. Has he ever had a dream before that's alarmed him? (laughs) He has, hasn't he? So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians and the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers came in and I told them the dream. See the growth there? Just a little bit of growth? (laughs) He wasn't giving the unreasonable terms. Tell me what the dream is. Then he said, I'll tell you what the dream is this time. And then you try and interpret it for me. I told them the dream, but they couldn't make known to me its interpretation. Verse 8, at last Daniel came before me. He who was named Belshazzar, Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, were introduced to Daniel's Babylonian name here. 
And why did he have that name? Well, Daniel, the Jew, Daniel, El Elohim, name of God. Dan means judge. So God judges. That was his Hebrew name, God judges. And it was changed to Belteshazzar. And Bel is from the god Baal. And the idea of Belteshazzar is God will protect the king or Baal will protect the king. And that was the name that he was given. If you can imagine this godly man. But Nebuchadnezzar says, he was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the vision of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The vision's of my head as I lay in my bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great and the tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible at the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all and the beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in the bed, behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. And he proclaimed aloud and said, chop down the tree, lop lop off its branches, strip it of its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the beast flee from under it, and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. And then there's this this shift from a tree to a man. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones. To the end. To the end. That the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men. And gives it to whom he will. And sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me its interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So again we see that God is communicating to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream. And you know, maybe one of the first questions we we ask is, is this normal? What's going on here? Does God speak to everybody in dreams? Well, God speaks to people. God wants to communicate to people. But under most circumstances, it's just normal communication 
that we're told of in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. It says that the things that we can know about God have been clearly expressed from the creation of this world in the creation of this world. And that the great problem also says this in Romans chapter 1 is not that God is not speaking his truth it's that people try to suppress the truth you see we always go God talk to me and you know we want some miraculous vision we want some voice to come from heaven to speak to us and we forget that the voice has already spoken if we want to know God, he's accessible. James, is it 1.5? says, if you want wisdom, ask of God. He's willing to give. But the problem is with us. We suppress. So many times, God communicates truth to you and to me. He says, you know what? Do this. No audible voice but you know he speaks to you in your heart and he says this would be the right thing to do and what do you do? What do I do? I don't do it, do I? And what's God supposed to say? Oh, here, you wouldn't finish your first plate of food. Here's another plate of food. He says, finish the first plate of food, then I'll give you more. He's a good parent, isn't he? You see, we could say the world out there suppresses truth, but how many times do you and I respond in this this way that's simply wrong? God prompts our conscience. God gives us his word. It's there. We can read it. We know what we should do. He gives us his son, the word. Jesus Christ, the revelation of God, the communication. Oh, what a clear communication of how you and I should live in the world. And then we go, no thanks. We suppress the truth. There are situations where God wants or needs to affirm something more radical He wants people to know, this is me at work. And he does some incredible things. If God wants you to supernaturally give birth to someone coming from heaven, he'll probably send you an angel. If God wants you to lead his people out of Egypt to the promised land, He'll most likely speak to you out of a burning bush. But you know, even for people in Bible times, most people in Bible times, 99% of followers, the followers of God, even in those times, they just followed the Lord based on what he had already clearly revealed about himself, his plan in creation, his word that he'd given. And we know we have even so much more than many of them in his son. Remember Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, you know, in times past, God spoke through the prophets. 
this veiled message about how people should live in a coming Messiah. And, and it was all clear enough. They knew how they should walk in faith. But Hebrews 1-2 says, but then he spoke through his son. You know, as we hear about people in the Bible having dreams and visions, let's never miss this fact. We have so much more than they did in the person of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament scripture, which tells us about him and how we should be living as his followers. Once again, we see with Nebuchadnezzar, this vision alarmed him, like it did in the first one. In this time, as I noted, he was fair with the wise men. He didn't make extreme demands. He didn't threaten to kill them. <laughs> That's a big change. But they weren't able to interpret the dream. But he knew Daniel could. See, there's growth. And the elements of this dream, the way this dream plays out, it's not very complex. I mean, this dream makes a lot more sense than most of the dreams I have. You know, those confusing ones with all sorts of things going on in the wrong places. This was this mighty tree, and it gave shelter and provided food for all. And then a watcher comes from heaven, an angel, a messenger of God, of the holy gods, he still wasn't clear in his communication. But the watcher said, chop down the tree, but leave the stump and the roots in the ground. And there's this band of iron around it. And then that shift, the main figure in the dream becomes a man. The tree becomes a man. The mind, and it, whose mind is changed to that of a beast's for a period of time. But you know, the best thing of all, in the dream, the general purpose of the dream is given. What's it say in verse 17? It says, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end, to this end, for this purpose, that the living not just Nebuchadnezzar, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. You see, God was working through this ruler of the mightiest kingdom that ever would be, the first and mightiest kingdom that would be in the history of man to communicate to all of us. To everybody who lives in the world. And we go, wow, we, there's a similarity between the last dream too, right? Remember the images? The, the four or five parts? All of these empires? And then the rock comes from heaven, doesn't it? Tremendous similarity. That God is the one who has power over everything even that takes place in this world. The dream starts with something natural and then something otherworldly, something heavenly comes in. And this grim reaper for trees comes and he almost completely 
destroys the tree. And the tree man goes into this beast-like state that seems to be an extreme consequence of the all-too-common choice that mankind can make, that men can make, that people like you and I can make to live according to our instincts rather than our image-bearing. Remember we talked about that when we went through Genesis? We're created in God's image. We are created with, with, with bodies that are much like the animals that run around in this world, but we're not like the animals. We're completely different. We think we're conscious of God. We communicate to one another. We have hearts that can love. We don't just operate based on these instincts, what's best for me? Or do we? You see, when we act like that, what's best for me? We're saying, God, I'm not going to serve you. And I'm certainly not going to do what's best for those people around me. I'm going to take care of me. I'm going to choose to live according to my instincts. I need to survive. I need to win. I need to be on top of things. We suppress the truth, what we've been created for, to be God's image bearers. And it, it says it again, Romans chapter 1, a little later in the verses, that we worship the creature rather than the creator. You see, that's why it's so easy for these evolutionary people today to say, you know, we're just, we're just like animals. And it's so believable <laughs> because so many people are just acting like animals. Whatever I want, that's what I should do. When we've been offered this position to be the image bearers of God, to bring into this world this idea of gracious, serving love as we sacrificially worship the God who created us. Well, it seems like this dream is bad news. Let's go further because we have more interpretation given. Verse 19, then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, he was dismayed for a while. And his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. What a tenderness in, in Daniel. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that his top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which the beasts of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king, who've grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown 
and reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, the holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation. O king, it is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your, pro of your prosperity. There's a lot can be gleaned from this interpretation, this shocking news. The one main thing we, we can say, and we can obviously say it was in the dream, is that God is sovereign. God is con in control of all things. He is the almighty power over the affairs of men. Over the affairs of a man. Over your affairs, over my affairs. But not apart from that, not different from that. I want to take note of something that we often forget as God interacts with us as human beings. Even though it's repeated. It's repeated in the word it's repeated in the world it's repeated again and again in this dream and in the uh, the event here as it plays out god is compassionate i mean i know you all you saw was the chainsaw and the tree falling but did you notice god's compassion here you know he didn't have to tell Nebuchadnezzar anything that was going down. But he came to Nebuchadnezzar and he gave him a warning. This is what's going to happen. And you know, there's a principle that is diametrically opposed to what goes on in this world today. If you're my friend, you'll lie to me. You'll just tell me what I want to hear, right? Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful is the friend who will come along and say to you, this is what's real. This is where you messed up. In that same verse, it says, but the kisses of an enemy. Maybe you have somebody in your life who you would like to think of as a friend because they're always saying nice things to you. Maybe it's just flattery. 
Maybe that pat in the back, that encouragement is pushing you in the wrong direction. And God's truth says faithful is somebody who tells you the truth, who wounds you, who might cuff you up back of the head, but they tell you what's true. God is that sort of a friend. That's the beginning of the gospel. All have sinned. Every one of us are sinners. Do we want to hear that? No. <laughs> I, I don't want to hear that even of myself. I want somebody just to tell me I'm a great guy and I'm, I'm doing wonderful things and keep her going. But that's how God comes to us with the gospel. You're a sinner. You need salvation. You need saved from your sin. You can't save yourself even. You're, you're not even capable of saving yourself. That's the truth that God gives to us. That's God's mercy. That's his, his compassion. And he does it right here with Nebuchadnezzar. He, he comes and he tells him truth. And who does he use? He uses Daniel. And you hear how Daniel speaks King, that this would be about your enemies. I don't even want to tell you about this. It's bad news, but I don't want this to happen to you. That could teach us something about our relationship with people who are living unrighteous lives. It could teach us something about sharing the gospel with unbelievers and teach us something about our attitudes because I mean so often you know you think of it this guy has been a world leader and he's been a, a despot and he's been a horrible tyrant autocratic took a swing at Daniel a couple of times you think Daniel would be he'd be there going <laughs> it's your turn now king you're the one who's under the gun. But he doesn't. He cares. I mean, because Daniel's living outside of, above the world situation. He's not just bumping into walls like everybody else. He's going, you know what? God's got this. God had communicated that clearly through the first vision. But Daniel really believed it. And he was living it and going, God has got this. And he even cared about Nebuchadnezzar. He had to work with him. He had to work with this guy who was a difficult guy. I'm glad none of you have to work with people who are difficult people. And still love them. Love them into the kingdom. Care for them as you share the gospel, which starts with bad news. You're a sinner. But guess what? You don't have to be there under God's condemnation. Because God loves you. So Daniel's sharing with him the truth, this interpretation in such a caring way. This is, once again, God's compassion. Another thing we, where we see God's compassion, the Lord's discipline can be harsh. The tree is going to be cut down. But it's not final. 
It's not final for those who he is saving. There's still a stump. There's roots in the ground. And this truth was told that discipline is for a time. For a time. And it has a specific purpose. Repeated from the first paragraph that spoke it, once again here. It was in verse 17 before, now it's in verse 25. The end of verse 25, where it says, this will happen for a time till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That's the purpose. That's the purpose of God's discipline, the harshness, what happens in God's discipline. There's a merciful purpose to teach us this truth. John 17, 3. John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. This was God's purpose here with Nebuchadnezzar, that Nebuchadnezzar would know who God is. That was his salvation. And here in the New Testament, John 17, 3, once again, this is eternal life, that people know God and his son, Jesus Christ. That is why God takes us through difficult times in our life. And I, I want to emphasize this. And we usually say this. Just because you're facing a hard time in your life, it doesn't mean God is judging you. But it doesn't mean that when we face tough times in our life, God might be trying to train you, to discipline you, to correct you. Showing his compassion in bringing you along. He's a good parent. And we can read in Hebrews 12 that whole passage about God disciplining those who he loves. Once again, we look at the situations of our life and we go, that's a problem. Ouch, this hurts. I don't like it. But what perspective are we going to have? Are we going to have the perspective of someone who's shaking their fist at God saying, don't do this to me? Or are we going to be someone who, like Nebuchadnezzar, this king, who it seems like there's no way he could come to this perspective. He says, God did this, not to me, but God did this for me. Like a good parent, he teaches his children, this is how life is. This is how it works. You know, and some parents, they just, they raise their kids and they, they give them everything and they tell them, you're the center of the world. And that child suffers for the rest of their life because nobody else out in the world thinks that way. Nobody else in the world's giving them everything and telling them that they're the greatest and can do whatever they want. 
They're condemning their child to a life of misery, telling them they're the center of everything. Whereas a good parent says, no, you have a responsibility to serve the world. And that child leaves home going, well, there's always something for me to do, isn't there? There's always something constructive for me to do. Because this is my point, this is my purpose, and not just as a good human being, but as a created image of God, like Jesus Christ served, came into the world, not to get, but to give, but to serve the world and give his life a ransom for many, it says in Mark chapter 10. I follow in his footsteps. I'm redeemed, created in the image of God, but I am in Christ's image. Christ is in me. Life makes sense. Hard? Yeah. Challenges? Sure. Difficulty? Mm-hmm. Need for me to grow? Yeah. But it makes sense. Because I'm listening to the truth that God has given me, I know he's the one who rules all. I know that life is more than the days I walk on this earth. I know there's an everlasting life. And in order to be involved in that everlasting life, I need to know God. And I know God through Jesus Christ, his son who came into the world, who died for my sins so I can have a relationship with the eternal God, my heavenly father. And as we look at this story and as we see God teaching king of the world the whole point is not he's finally getting his it's wow he's a representative of all of us isn't he God could do this to all of us and be perfectly just leave us slobbering out in the field like an animal I would deserve that. Because how many times have I said, hm, no thanks God, don't want your truth. I'll take this on my own. I'll take care of number one. I li I'll live according to my instincts and not, I want to be your image bearer in the world. I want to live for you. I'll live according to truth even though it can be hard. And, you know, we could think that Daniel, as he communicates this message, this compassionate message to, to Nebuchadnezzar, we could think, oh, he's pandering to him. He's saying, oh, king, not you. I don't want this to happen to you. Well, of course he's doing that because he wants a higher position. No, at the end, he says, king, stop being a sinner. Turn your life around. Repent. You know, we have stories of that. Also in the scripture of Hezekiah, remember King Hezekiah? God says, I'm going to take your life. You're not doing what you should be doing. Hezekiah says, I'll change. Give me more time. God says, okay, I'll tack on 10 more years. There's Nineveh. Jonah goes into Nineveh. Three days, you're going to be judged. Nineveh repents. 
And God stays his hand. See, a compassionate message from Daniel, who's inferior, a message from God through Daniel, who's inferior to the king. But the message comes from a God who is superior, unquestionably superior over the king. And we go, wow. God didn't squash him like a bug. God could have done that and been perfectly justified. But in 1 Corinthians 11.32, it says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. God, we want to thank you for your great love for us. We know there are hardships, but you've given us pictures in this life of coaches, of parents, of teachers who are training us, trying to make us into something better, and and they do it imperfectly. But they're an example of what you do perfectly. You train and shape and mold and you present truth to us, hard truths that say you're a sinner, hard truths that say you need to sacrifice here more. You need to honor me better here. Lord, help us to listen to your voice. Help us to hear your convicting voice, your spirit that says not that, but this. so that we might know you. So that we might honor you in our hearts, in our actions, in our hearts, attitude, in our hands, activities, that we might glorify you as the almighty God. You deserve it. Work in us, work through us, we pray. By Christ's power in our lives, amen.